Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your tour guide for today's episode. Episode 3 The History of TSR. Last week, while we were discussing the history of Dungeons and Dragons, we took a surface look at the creation of TSR, which was the company responsible for the printing and release of D&D. This week, we're going to dig deeper and look at the entirety of its history, including some of the games it released and all of the legal and financial issues that ultimately led to its sale to Wizards of the Coast in 1997. Tactical Studies Rules, or TSR, was formed in 1973 by Gary Gygax and Don Kay, who ponied up $2,400 U.S. to start the partnership. Now, as I mentioned last week, the express purpose of TSR was to have a company to publish and sell the rules for the newly created Dungeons & Dragons. I also mentioned last week that TSR decided to release another game to help fund the release of D&D. And I'll also admit, I used the phrase, a sign of things to come, probably a few times more than I should have last week, but come on. To me, the fact that you've created a company to release a specific product, and then you decide you need to create and release a completely different product to fund the release of the first product, that's chapter one in the book of bad ideas. And a sign of things to come. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. The game they created was called Cavaliers and Roundheads. Cavaliers and Roundheads was a war game and specifically required the chainmail rules to play. Written by Gary Gygax and Jeff Perron, it brought an English Civil War tone to wargaming. Now, I'm not going to get much deeper into the game except to say this. It became pretty obvious pretty quick that this game was not going to produce the necessary revenue to facilitate the release of D&D. Spoiler alert, it didn't. So, with that in mind, Gygax and Kay recruited Brian Bloom to come aboard, and they made him a partner in TSR. He was tasked specifically with finding more funding so that D&D could be released. Spoiler alert, he succeeded. In fact, I noted last week that TSR sold out 4,000 copies over three printings of D&D from January 1974 to about March of 1976. There's your proof that he succeeded. Anyway, getting back into the company itself, the corporate structure of TSR at the time was Don Kay as the president, Brian Bloom as vice president, and Gary Gygax as editor. And it should be noted that the TSR company headquarters at the time was the basement of Gary Gygax's house in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. So, with D&D coming out hot, Gygax decided to drop another miniatures game in 1974, called Warriors of Mars. It was based on the fantasy world of Barsoom, as detailed by Edgar Rice Burroughs in the sci-fi series John Carter of Mars. Gygax had done a shout-out to the series in the preface of D&D and had listed it as an influence on that game. However, what neither he nor TSR had done was to either get permission from or make a financial deal with the estate of Edgar Rice Burroughs. So, you know what's coming. Burroughs' estate got a cease and desist order, and TSR was forced to pull Warrior of Mars from production and from the store shelves. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up, and and I know because I've tried. 
This was two legal issues in three releases in TSR's history. If you go back to the similarities between D&D and Lord of the Rings terminology from last week. I mean, I know the Tolkien estate didn't actually file a suit, but they threatened one, and that got things changed. So in an attempt to change course, TSR decided to publish another role-playing game in 1975 called Empire of the Petal Throne. It had a mix of science fiction and fantasy that D&D didn't have. Another thing it didn't have was a TSR-based creator. It was created by M.A.R. Baum, who was a professor at the University of Minnesota. It also brought a huge amount of detail to its world and its setting, which was new. In fact, the entire concept of what we call a campaign setting begins with Petal Throne. Something else we got from Petal Throne was the critical hit. Now, for those not in the know, a critical hit occurs in D&D when a player rolls a 20 on a 20-sided die. In D&D 5th Edition, it means you roll your damage dice twice. In Petal Throne, it meant you doubled the damage. Also, it gave you the option to roll again. And If you rolled a 19 or a 20 on that roll, you got what they called a killing blow. Now, Petal Throne has been published off and on for the past 40-odd years. However, the last version I could find was in 2005 by a Canadian company called Guardians of Order. However, I've read a lot of online reviews about it, and a pretty good amount of them say positive things. So, if you can find it anywhere, I would suggest trying it, and uh, let me know how you liked it, or, or didn't. TSR also kept its hands in the miniature game scene, putting out Panzer Warfare in 1975 to pretty good success. So, by doing the math, by this point, TSR had two successfully published role-playing games, plus a couple of pretty successful war games. This should have been a slam dunk of money, right? Well, it's not that TSR wasn't making money. They just had a bit of a problem. See, at its creation, TSR set itself up as a quasi-direct fulfillment company. In other words, they shipped their products directly to customers or directly to game shops and hobby stores. Now, while that sounds like an easy way to do it, it requires an insane amount of bookkeeping and logistics to make it work. That's why most companies choose to use a wholesaler. However, TSR wasn't really doing that at the time, and it was costing them money and sales. This changed in 1975. TSR added a couple of regular distributors. Then they joined the Hobby Industry Association of America in 1976, and they set up booths at the trade show. Once they'd done all of that, TSR was off to the races. However... As we discussed last week, TSR was never really able to just have good news. It seemed like every success had to be countered with a negative or a failure of some type. And on January 31st, 1975, TSR got its negative news. TSR President Don Kay died of a heart attack. The company found itself in a no-win situation. They, they wanted to mourn their friend and co-worker, but they had to tend to the needs of their ever-expanding business. So Don's wife, Donna, took on Don's position and oversaw accounting, shipping, and records. But by the summer of 75, things were getting a lot more complex because sales were increasing. So Gary Gygax made himself a full-time employee to help take some of those duties from Donna. This is also when Dave Arneson joined the partnership, with his role being to coordinate research and design in Minneapolis-St. Paul. Then, they made another change. On September 26, 1975, 
all assets of Tactical Studies rules were transferred to a new company, TSR Hobbies. Now, Bloom and Gygax had incorporated that company earlier in 75, with the original plan being for TSR Hobbies to make miniatures and games both from and for other companies. However, with everything that had happened, it was decided to put all of TSR's business under one corporate roof. Something else that needs to be noted. Brian Bloom's father, Melvin, bought into TSR Hobbies, therefore ensuring that Melvin and Brian Bloom were the majority stakeholders in the company. For those of you keeping track at home, make a note of that, because it's going to play big a little later on. Some good news from 1975 saw TSR open a gaming store, the Dragon Hobby Store in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Another change that year saw TSR subcontract its printing and assembly work, which is what allowed that third printing of D&D to be 2,000 copies instead of the 1,000 that each of the first two had been. Also in 1975, Tim Cask came aboard as the periodicals editor, and he became the first full-time employee who wasn't a part of that original partnership. Finally, 1975 saw TSR release its third role-playing game, and the second produced by TSR itself, Boot Hill. Now, taking its name from the Wild West term for a cemetery, Boot Hill was an Old West, Wild West adventure. Written by that original TSR triumvirate, Gygax, Bloom, and Kay, its focus was more on gunfighting than role-playing, which made it a bit darker than D&D. Now, in my research, a number of writers noted Boot Hill was really the brainchild and the love of Don Kay with Bloom and Gygax assisting him in the writing due to their skills in writing role-playing games. Kay's death could have ended that release, but TSR decided to release it in tribute to their fallen leader. But, all sentiment aside, the differences in Boot Hill from D&D caused Boot Hill to not be as popular, but it did last long enough to get three editions over a 15-year span. For those of you not doing all the math, that third edition was published in 1990. However, in researching this, every source I found for Boot Hill said basically the same thing. If you want all gunfights and death, Boot Hill is your game. If you want some setting and roleplay, you're going to have to go someplace else. 1976 saw TSR bring in $300,000 U.S. in revenues, and it also saw the first Gen Con. Technically marketed as a game fair, Gen Con saw space for game creators, retailers, and players. The 1976 Gen Con also saw the first D&D Open Tournament, as well as a whole lot of other live games played at the site. Gen Con is considered by pretty much everybody to be the convention of conventions. And with that in mind, we'll give it its own episode a little later on in this series. June of 1976 also saw the first issue of what would become a legendary magazine, Dragon. It replaced several less successful magazines from TSR, and Dragon was, according to Gary Gygax, the reason Tim Cask was brought on board. It contained a whole lot of new material, rules, spells, magic items, and monsters, and would be published bi-monthly until 2007. As 1976 became 1977, TSR continued pumping out D&D content, as I noted in last week's show, which, by the way, is available in the archives wherever you got today's episode. 
And while I'm not going to go back and talk about every D&D release, considering I did a hell of a lot of those last week, I did dig up a nugget on the AD&D Monster Manual that I found pretty interesting. When it was released in 1977, it was the first hardbound book ever published by a game company. Before that, all publications were softcover. 1978 finally saw TSR get some new digs. They moved out of Gygax's house and into the office space above the Dragon Hobby Store in Lake Geneva. Hey, fun fact. In 1979, to coincide with the release of the Dungeon Master's Guide for AD&D, radio ads were produced featuring Morley the Wizard. He became the mascot for TSR and showed up in a whole lot of print ads for a lot of years. And I did try to find a recording of one of the radio ads, but I was unsuccessful. But should I find one, or should someone send me one, hint, hint, I will play it in a future episode. Now, before we dive back into the timeline, I want to point out that as the late 70s became the 1980s, TSR noticed a lot of competitors putting out unofficial supplements for both D&D and AD&D. Some of these could easily be argued were in violation of TSR's copyrights, and where they could, they sent cease and desist orders. However, what usually wound up happening was that the publishers would tweak a few things here and there in the book to satisfy the mandate of the court, then just reprint them and keep on selling. The irony here, of course, is that TSR made adjustments to D&D to avoid legal issues with the Tolkien estate, then had to pull Warriors of Mars because of an actual cease and desist from the Burroughs estate. However, all of that being said, one can certainly understand why TSR did what they did. I mean, you've spent time and money putting out your product and promoting it. Then someone comes along and piggybacks off your hard work without your permission. Or more to the point, without paying you for the piggyback ride. But if you'll remember back to something I said last week, you'll note that previous to D&D, wargamers typically just rewrote rules entirely when they wanted to make changes. That was pretty much a standard practice. What changed now was TSR's willingness to defend its trademarks and copyrights, as was its right to do. In 1980, TSR entered the spy genre of role-playing games with Top Secret. It was designed as an espionage role-playing game, and it turned out to be quite successful. According to some sources, TSR was paid a visit by the FBI when a note written on TSR letterhead about an assassination plot got out. The plot was fake. It was supposedly a part of the top-secret playtest. The FBI investigated and left and determined that everything was on the level. But I gotta say, there are those who believe that whole story is a hoax. I mean, after all, <laughs> doesn't that sound like something that you'd use for advertising? Suspense so real, even the FBI couldn't tell the difference. I can't prove it one way or the other, so I think we're just going to leave it right here and move on. 1980 also saw TSR create a subsidiary in the UK, TSR Hobbies UK Limited. This was after TSR and Games Workshop couldn't reach a new agreement for Games Workshop to continue UK licensing. Don Turnbull headed TSR UK and expanded TSR into Europe throughout the 1980s. So if you're listening to this and are a European D&D player, you probably have Don Turnbull to thank. Or blame. I'm not judging. It should be noted that TSR UK produced the original Fiend Folio, and it also published a magazine, Imagine, for 31 issues. 
While Imagine was ultimately unsuccessful, it did publish the first short story written by a nice fellow named Neil Gaiman. So there's that. 1980 also saw the creation of the Role-Playing Game Association, or RPGA. Its original goal was to promote the game, as well as work to help gamers find games and game masters find gamers. Over time, it evolved and it changed, and it ultimately morphed into what is now known as the D&D Adventurers League, and that is in full operation to this day. In 1981, TSR found yet another office, a much larger former medical supply building with an attached warehouse in Lake Geneva. Also, Inc. Magazine listed TSR as one of the 100 fastest-growing privately held companies in the U.S. In 1982, TSR Hobbies broke the 20 million sales mark. After that, they decided to produce their own miniatures for AD&D. You see, somewhere between the start of D&D and this point, some gamers had started using miniatures for their characters, which made it easier to see what was going on on the map or the game board when the action was taking place. To this point, TSR had been content to allow other companies to produce the minis that were being used, but realizing how much money they were allowing out the door, they began producing those themselves, and then they made a toy licensing deal with LJN business was seriously heating up. In fact, by this point, TSR had exclusive distribution rights in 22 countries. D&D had first been translated in French, but was soon translated in Danish, Finnish, German, Hebrew, Italian, Japanese, Korean, Norwegian, and Swedish. And if you've ever read something from the Endless Quest series, you have TSR to thank. In 1982, TSR set up an educational department the goal being to develop material for use in school classrooms. However, Endless Quest was really the best thing they wound up developing. So, with business on the rise, let's take another look inside TSR at this time. By this point, Melvin Bloom had transferred his shares in the company to his son Kevin, and this left the board of directors of TSR Hobbies as Kevin and Brian Bloom and Gary Gygax. Gygax later admitted he was basically just a figurehead. Brian was running creative affairs, and Kevin was running operations. That was in 1981, and in that year, TSR had a payroll of 130 and revenues of $12.9 million U.S. Then they decided to expand some more. A needlecraft business, toy and gift vendors, more miniature manufacturing. TSR even tried to get into the entertainment business. I'll have more on that in a moment. They also got the trademarks and copyrights of the company Simulations Publications, Inc. out of foreclosure. This gave TSR the rights to Amazing Stories magazine. If you don't know what that is, Google it. So, I noted diversification into entertainment a few minutes ago. This came in 1983, when TSR basically blew itself up. I mean, the company split into four separate companies. TSR, Inc., TSR International... TSR Ventures, and TSR Entertainment, Inc. Now, the entertainment wing, well, was Gary Gygax's baby. So he left for Hollywood to try to license D&D products for movies and television. In 1983, the only license he managed to get was for the D&D cartoon. It was on the air for three seasons and was tops in its time slot on CBS for two of those years. It was a really good cartoon. It also spawned about 100 different licenses of its own, 
and produced decent revenue for TSR and its production partner, this little company you might have heard of called Marvel. TSR's next big thing was the Dragonlance Saga, which began in 1984. Now, I said last week the novels were among the best-selling ever written. Well, the first novel, written as they all were by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, entitled Dragons of Autumn Twilight, topped the New York Times bestseller list. Also in 1984, TSR expanded its role-playing game lineup, signing deals to produce Marvel superheroes, Indiana Jones, and Conan. Now, two versions of Marvel were ultimately produced, and it should be noted that these games still have an exceptionally loyal group of players that still play by those rules, even though other companies have produced newer rules in the years since. The Indiana Jones game, it was never really a bestseller, and that license was just allowed to expire in 1985. Conan was decently reviewed, but it only got a single release, along with a few supplements, before that license was also allowed to expire. 1985 saw a move for Gen Con from Lake Geneva to Milwaukee due to the success it enjoyed, which necessitated a larger space. And even though I'm focusing pretty much on the role-playing games, I did want to point out that TSR published a board game licensed from the soap opera All My Children in 1985. It sold over 150,000 copies. 1986 saw the creation of Dungeon Adventures magazine, later shortened to Dungeon. It was bi-monthly and allowed TSR to print adventure scenarios for D&D. This gave a lot of writers and creators a chance to prove themselves over the years. And with the creation of Dungeon, TSR had two bi-monthly magazines cranking out new rules, new items, and new settings for players to use. So at this point, again, we need to step out of this timeline and get to the business of TSR itself. Now, when Gary Gygax went to Hollywood in 1982-83, he left the Blooms in charge of the day-to-day operations of TSR. Gygax met a fellow by the name of Flint Dilly while he was out west, and Flint helped him with the Endless Quest books and help him pen an unsuccessful movie script. By 1984, Gygax had found out that TSR was $1.5 million U.S. in debt. Then he found out the Blooms were looking for a buyer for TSR. So at that point, Gygax asked Dilly for a meeting with Dilly's sister, Lorraine Williams. She declined to invest, but did accept Gygax's offer to go to work for TSR, managing the day-to-day operations. And believe me, her bona fides were solid. Not only had she worked at the National Newspaper Syndicate, but her family owned the rights to the Buck Rogers comic, uh, among other comics. Williams came in, settled the debt with TSR's creditors, and got the cash flowing again. But Gygax wasn't finished. He decided to make a move on Kevin Bloom to have him removed as TSR's CEO due to the fiscal mismanagement. He pointed to the failed projects, like the latchhook rugs and other non-traditional items, which caused the company to take a huge loss. Gygax was successful at getting Kevin removed, but then Kevin's brother Brian had a surprise up his sleeve. He triggered his stock option, which allowed him and his brother to sell all of their shares at one time. They sold them to Lorraine Williams, making her the majority shareholder. Now, as you might expect, Gygax was pretty pissed off about this. He initially considered firing Lorraine Williams, but his lawyer talked him out of doing that. 
What he decided to do instead was to claim the Blooms' stock sale was illegal, and he sued him. He claimed in his filing that he had a verbal agreement with the Blooms that should they ever decide to sell, he had right of first refusal. However, the courts disagreed with Gygax and ruled the sale legal. Thoroughly pissed off, Gary Gygax sold Lorraine Williams all of his stock and walked away from TSR. Now, coupled with Dave Arneson's departure from the company in 1980, this left TSR without either of the creators of D&D for the very first time. Lorraine Williams had a vision for the future of TSR, without a doubt. However, she wasn't as high on games as Gygax and the Blooms had been. In fact, many reports claim she believed that she was better than gamers. Oh, and I guess it's time for my mandatory Jolly Blackburn mention, because he skewers that whole concept in his Knights at the Dinner Table magazine. Seriously, you got to go back and look at the comic. He does it more justice than I think I probably have. But for the time being, Williams did allow D&D to continue chugging along as it kept producing the cash she needed to keep TSR afloat. In 1988, a Bullwinkle and Rocky role-playing game was released. It came with hand puppets and a spinner and while it was novel, it was never very successful, nor very well liked. In fact, I discovered several reviews from the time that called it cute, but hardly a role-playing game. That same year, TSR released a war game based on Tom Clancy's novel, The Hunt for Red October. I note it because this was the most successful war game of all time for quite a few years. And, by the way, this was all well before the movie adaptations of Tom Clancy's works had come out. So all of this was based solely on the success of the book and how good the war game was. Williams then decided to use her family-controlled product, Buck Rogers, for both a role-playing game and a board game. Both had moderate, though not exceptional, sales and were really given meh reviews. In 1990, TSR opened a West Coast division, replacing Gygax's failed division from a few years before. 1992 saw the release of TSR's first hardcover novel, Legacy, by R.A. Salvatore, which topped the New York Times bestseller list and started a long-time partnership between TSR and then Wizards of the Coast and R.A. Salvatore. The Gen Con Game Fair broke all previous attendance records for any U.S.-based game convention in 1992, with more than 18,000 people attending. 1993 brought the world Dragon Strike. It was a role-playing game based basically on the D&D basic set, but it was pared down to make it even easier to learn and play. What made it novel was it came with a 30-minute video which explained the concept of role-playing. Now, I found several copies of this on YouTube and have posted links to it both on Anchor.fm and the Role Playing History Facebook page. But if you're going to watch it, it is a legit 30 minutes, so be ready for that. However, with all of that being said, 1993 was really kind of the beginning of TSR's end. By 1995, TSR had seen itself fall behind both Games Workshop and Wizards of the Coast in sales. Games Workshop had just continued churning out the miniatures and game products they'd been producing for years and had expanded at a pace that allowed them to keep up with trends. Wizards, on the other hand, had gotten into the collectible card game business with Magic the Gathering, and the ginormous success of Magic had vaulted them into the realm of success. 
TSR looked at Wizard's success with Magic and noted the other collectible card games being created and decided that was the future of gaming, so they jumped into the field. In 1995, Dragon Dice was TSR's entry into the collectible card game field. However, just to be different, TSR used dice for the game instead of cards. Each die or die type represented a certain type of trooper unit. The core Dragon Dice set had randomized dice, and the player could purchase booster packs to try to get better units for their deck. For the record, this was no different than what Magic was doing or what Pokemon would do later. And for a bit, it seemed to work. Dragon Dice started strong, so TSR immediately decided to produce several more expansion packs. They also decided to aggressively market the game through mass-market bookstores, utilizing Random House as their wholesaler. And that's where it all came crashing down. After the hot start, Dragon Dice cooled off pretty quickly. It never sold well in the mass-market bookstores, and when sales fell rapidly in the traditional sites like game stores, TSR began to worry. To add to that worry, TSR had decided to release 12 hardcover novels in 1996. This was a big deal, because TSR had never released more than one hardcover per year since they'd started doing that. This was Lorraine Williams' input, as she believed she understood the business better than anybody else. And while she very well might have, this was a very serious miscalculation by her. So as 1996 progressed, TSR began to seriously hemorrhage cash. So, as 1996 progressed, TSR began to seriously hemorrhage cash. Historians and writers attribute some of this to the collectible card game impact on the role-playing game industry. And, and this is partially true, as a lot of companies saw a reduction in revenues during this time thanks to the hype behind collectible card games. However, Shannon Applecline also noted that TSR, quote, had developed so many settings that they were both cannibalizing their only sales and discouraging players from picking up settings that might be gone in a few years, end quote. In his book of Dice and Men, David M. Elwolt noted that Dragon Dice was, quote, expensive to produce and didn't sell very well, end quote. In 1996, TSR reported total sales of $40 million U.S., However, they ended the year with minimal cash reserves. So when Random House returned a huge, unexpected amount of unsold stock, then charged a multi-million dollar fee, TSR was in a money pinch. TSR was, effectively, broke. They had no money to pay the printing and shipping bills, so, of course, the logistics company handling printing, warehouse, and shipping refused to do any more work. Oh, and it has to be noted, the logistics company held the production plates for most of the D&D books. This meant TSR couldn't just print off a few runs of the core D&D product to pump some more cash into the system or to secure themselves a short-term loan. Now, there'd been layoffs and firings in the past, typically when there was some sort of reorganization in the company. This time, though, they had a really big one. In December of 1996, 30 staff members were laid off, then a whole lot of others left because they were just really pissed off and disappointed with how this entire situation had been handled. All of this meant that TSR entered 1997 about $30 million U.S. in debt and was being threatened with lawsuits by unpaid freelancers and for unpaid royalties. 
TSR managed to duck and dodge a lot of this by selling what little product they still had on the shelves and then pay off staff and as many of the debts as possible. And this worked for most of the first half of 1997. But Lorraine Williams saw the writing on the wall. There was no reasonable plan that would end with TSR still be in business when things were over, or at least not in any form Lorraine would have wanted. So she sold TSR to Wizards of the Coast later in 1997. Now, I need to point out, Wizards of the Coast is based in Renton, Washington. So they did announce they'd be shutting down the Lake Geneva offices, but they did offer many TSR employees the opportunity to move to Washington and to join the team at Wizards, and many did. Also, Wizards kept the TSR name on all D&D products until 3rd edition was released in 2000. Then Wizards dropped and retired the name. Finally, Gen Con was sold to Peter Adkisson in 2002. That should have been the end of TSR. However, TSR just seems to be the company that won't die. See, a fellow by the name of Jason Elliott had noticed that Wizards allowed the TSR trademark to expire in 2004. So he decided to register it himself in 2011, and he brought on the sons of Gary Gygax, Luke and Ernie, as well as Tim Kask, who'd been a longtime TSR employee and responsible for the success of both Dragon and Dungeon magazines. Their first and best-known product was Gygax magazine, which was a spiritual successor to Dragon which, by the way, had gone out of print by 2011. However, this new version of TSR wouldn't make it very long. Gygax magazine collapsed after six issues, and the company shut down not a whole lot longer after that. But, if rumors are to be believed, there's another generation of gamers about to see what they can do with the TSR name, and we'll keep our eyes on that. Look, TSR was in its time truly revolutionary. However, I believe it should also be seen as a cautionary tale for anybody running a business. While it had unprecedented success, failures of its own design led to its eventual demise. So with that, we'll go ahead and end our look into the history of TSR. Next week, we'll explore how the role-playing game world grew and expanded after the launch of D&D, and we'll take a look at some of the different companies and different games that were produced. But before we go, I wanted to thank our growing little group of supporters for listening in every week. I genuinely cannot begin to tell you what it means to me that you take the time to listen to my little podcast here. We have a Facebook page, Roleplaying History, where you can drop by and comment on the show. Also, you can email questions or comments to me directly at roleplayinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. So, with that, I'll see you next Friday at 11 a.m. Central Time as we continue to look at the growth of the role-playing game industry after D&D. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.